Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. This is part three of the Shurangama Sutra here. Uh, if it's your first time here ever, welcome. Uh, if it's your first time for this sutra, I'm going to recap where we're at. This is day three, so I'm going to recap the first two days very quickly. Um, it's kind of important to lay out all this groundwork again so that we... It's difficult to jump right into the middle of the sutra. Um, so, yeah. So this is uh, Shurangama Sutra. Shurangama is a Sanskrit word that means indestructible. And I meant to tell you the first night and the second night about this indestructibility. And I forgot. So please, don't let me leave tonight without explaining the indestructible, if I fail to do it. Uh, it's a Mahayana Sutra. As you can see, it's quite a big sutra. Um, and just very quickly, if you, again, if you care, there's recordings of the first two sessions up online, so you can listen to them. But it, this sutra takes place in Shravasti, in the Jatavana, usual place for sutras to take place. But it's kind of a funny sutra, because what happened was, is that Ananda, the Buddha's youngest disciple, his young cousin, got sidetracked when he wound up in a house of prostitution. And he almost breaks his vow of pure living. And right before he did, the Buddha emits a giant ray of light from his Ushnisha, which is a top, it's not a top knot, a hair, it's actually a protrudence of the scalp. And actually from the light that comes out of that, his Ushnisha, there emerges what's called a transformation Buddha out of the light on a thousand-petaled lotus flower. And this sutra chants a mantra called the Shirangama mantra, the indestructible mantra. And this brings Ananda to the assembly where the Buddha is giving his discourse. And the Buddha's main question to Ananda is, where is your mind? And it's kind of funny because he is, in a way, asking Ananda, like, what were you thinking? How, you know, how could you have fallen into the house of prostitution? But he's also asking him in this very philosophical, speculative way, analytical way, where's your mind? Um, and if you uh, wanted to know, uh, so this is being translated from, San, or from Chinese. And in Chinese, it's called a xin, which is this interesting character, Chinese character that means both heart and mind. And so it's actually like heart slash mind, the heart mind. And it is xin. Xin is usually the way that the Chinese translated chitta, chitta, the Sanskrit word for mind. Mm. Um, and so the Buddha is asking Ananda, where is your chitta? Where is your mind? And in the first sort of chapter of this sutra, the Buddha refutes Ananda's seven attempts to explain where his mind is. He says, oh no, my mind's in my body. Obviously, it's in my body. It's inside. And I wanted to reiterate a couple of points here of how the Buddha refutes these first two. 
I just wanted to remind us. It'll help later on. He says, if your mind is inside the body, then that would be like a light in a room. And doesn't that light in a room light up what's in the room first and then light what's outside the room? So Ananda, if your mind is inside your body, how is it that you have no awareness of the inside of your body? You have no awareness of being inside your body. The light seems to be shining entirely outside and there's no light inside the house. So then Ananda says, oh, so my, my mind must be outside my body. Because you Buddha, Buddha, you just said that a lamp will light up what's inside before it's outside, and the lamp is lighting what's outside. The lamp isn't even in the room. There's no light inside here. Therefore, my mind must be outside my body. And the Buddha then says, well, then why can't you see your own face if your mind is outside your body? And that's when Buddha says, oh, then it must be, my mind must be hidden in a sense organ. And I wanted to say real quickly that in this version, this translation of the sutra, uh, the person translates it as like that it's hidden inside a sense organ, maybe the brain. But actually, the original seems to say that Ananda suggests that it's actually hidden in the eye, in, this, in the sense organ, meaning my eyeball is where my mind is. And then uh, the Buddha refutes that by saying, then why don't you have any awareness of being trapped inside your eyeball? Kind of an argument. In which the Buddha, then Ananda says, oh, I get it. My mind is like an orifice or an aperture, like my bowels, where there's parts of my bowels that are inside and it's dark, but there's a part of my bowels that's on the outside and it's light. So where it's like an orifice or an aperture where there's exposure to the outside, there's light, and where there's no exposure, it's dark. And the Buddha basically, again, refutes this by saying, this inside you're talking about, how is it that you have no awareness of being inside? And again, this outside, how, do you have, how come you have no awareness of being outside? If you're saying that the mind is both sort of inside and outside in that way, like an orifice and aperture, how is it that you have no awareness of being Back there, in there, in the eye, in the, like a bowel. So then Ananda says, oh, the mind must arise based on conditions. And the, the Buddha's answer to that is, is based on what conditions? Because I, the Buddha, have already explained to you that there are six sensory organs. And they each correspond to a different sensory object. And when each sensory organ, the eyeball comes into contact with form or light, there emerges a eye consciousness. There emerges an ear consciousness when ears come into contact with sound, when smells in the nose, the tongue, the tongue and taste, and then the mind and ideas. And when those come into contact, there emerges an eye consciousness, a body consciousness, an ear consciousness. And then when the brain rubs up against the idea, there emerges a sixth consciousness, a consciousness of the brain that's kind of an operating system. And so, Ananda, if your mind arises based on conditions, what condition, what sense media with what sense organ is giving rise to this chitta you're talking about? Where? Based on what? And Ananda says, oh, you're right. 
There's nothing for it to be based on. Therefore, it must be in between the inside and the outside. And that's where he asks Sananda, oh, you mean it's like on the surface of your skin? And he's like, no, 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 it's like in between. And the Buddha says, where? Because everything in the universe, every blade of grass, every bird, every tree is somewhere. Everything is somewhere, can be located. So where exactly are you talking about in this in-between? And then Ananda says, you're right, there is no place in between. The mind must be that which doesn't cling. Right? To which the Buddha says, well, if what you're referring to doesn't exist, then it doesn't exist. And it's like the horn of a rabbit or like a turtle fur coat, you know, like a turtle fur coat. It's just, you can talk about it, but it doesn't exist. And then if it does exist, then where is it? Again, we go back through the questions, then where is it? Is it inside? Is it outside? Da, da, da. Till eventually Ananda says, you're right. I don't know. I don't know where my mind is. You've got me. At that point in the story, not the Ushnisha, but from the Erna, from the kind of third eye center of the Buddha, he emits this same multicolored light. And then he explains to Ananda and all those assembled that there are basically two minds, sort of. And what's he, what he sets up is all of this up here, all right, which I'm going to break all of that down. This is all... Samskrita dharmas, conditioned things, conditioned reality. So the Buddha sort of recaps the central teachings of Buddhism, which is that, like I just said, all of our experience is conditional, conditions based on light, sound, sense, tastes, tactile, and thought. And I've drawn up here a few other things. So one thing, just to explain conditioned reality, A, conditioned reality, meaning each of us is an amalgamation of these six sensory organs that are coming into contact with six sensory objects and dependent upon that merger, dependent upon that contact, there arises a consciousness. And these six organs with their six corresponding objects which when they unite, produce, or originate a six, six consciousnesses, these six plus six plus six make 18 realms. And according to Buddhism, anything that you could possibly imagine, think of, or conceive of, falls into one of those six categories, is one of those six sense media. A thought, an image, a sound, a feeling, tactile feeling, so we have those 18 realms. And speaking of 18, I threw this over on the side here. Another example of, of conditioned reality. This is an example that I use often. What is this? What is that? What is that? It's a line. That's a line, right? So this is a dependently originated letter I. Because in your mind, when you see a line, a line, next to a curvy line, 
it turns this one into a letter called I, and that turns this one into a letter S. And they dependently originate each other. What happens, though, and this is the trick of the mind, is that if I do this, oh, now it's a one. It's a one all of a sudden, but I didn't touch it, right? I didn't do anything to, to that. What I did was I did something to the thing next to it. But the thing next to it is determining in your mind what this thing is. So they're going back and forth. Is this a number one or a letter I? It depends. What does it depend on? It depends. This is all dependent reality, right? Everything depends on something. Um, I mentioned the bowl. I'm always talking about the bowl not existing. It depends. Last week, we went through a whole series of dependencies of the bowl, talking about, you know, is this bowl a big bowl? Well, it depends, right? It depends on if I brought in another bowl and it was a lot bigger, then this would be a little bowl. And then again, is it a smooth bowl? Well, if I brought in a few other bowls that were, again, glassy, they just like looked wet, they were so smooth, this would all of a sudden, look at it, all of a sudden it looks all dinged up, just thinking about those other bowls that are smoother, right? Now all of a sudden this is like rough, all banged up, right? So is it big? Is it smooth? Does it sound good? It all depends, right? So what I'm getting at is that when the Buddha is talking about dependent reality, samskritha dharma, conditioned things, this is what he's talking about. Everything is conditional. Everything depends. Um, then I went through the whole uh, the self-analysis of considering myself uh, considering myself a husband, but that's dependent on my wife. Considering myself a teacher, but that's dependent on students. Considering myself a this, but that's dependent on that. Considering myself a son, but that's dependent on my father. Considering myself a, a man, that's based on the idea of a woman. All of these things are dependent upon. Just, so just like the I and the S, or the number one and the eight, I'm a man because I'm standing next to a woman. If there were no women in the universe at all, like somehow we just zapped them all away, would, a, would man make any sense? No, there would just be being, I guess, or something, right? So it's all dependent. So I'm dependent. Numbers and letters are dependent. Bowls are dependent. Our whole reality is conditionally dependent. Um, uh, so this is another one that I play around with. Here's the letter A. But of course, the letter A doesn't exist in a vacuum. And when I write the letter A, in your mind, I kind of secretly write all those other letters because for this to be the letter A depends upon the other 25 letters of the alphabet. It depends upon them. You can, you can imagine or think of this dependent reality as literally like dependent, like I'm leaning up against something. And so the letter or the number one here is leaning up against the number eight, which is leaning up against the number one. And they're leaning up against each other to be what they are. But if it's all of a sudden that number eight ducks, ooh, I'm an S, right? The number one goes, ah, because it's dependent upon that. So they're leaning up against each other. They're dependent. This letter A is dependent upon all those things. Me being a husband is dependent on the wife. We're like leaning against each other to be her to be a wife. Me to be the husband, right? You all following this? 
Um, interestingly enough about this, that the letter A contains the whole alphabet, right? But what's interesting is, is that, isn't this helium? Isn't that hydrogen? Isn't that magnesium? Isn't that nitrogen? Right? So even the composition of something, when we really start to get down to it, isn't it based on an alphabet in order to conceive of it? No? If you understand what I'm saying in terms of this is a, a matrix of understanding, and I cannot just go like, hey, nobody's looking. I'm going to take out B. No more B. You don't just get to sneak a letter out, right? Because it's a matrix. Yeah? So letter B is always going to be there, right? Right? Well, what is the periodic table of elements that is represented by these same letters, by the way, right? Oxygen. Look, there's oxygen. That periodic table of elements, right, is also a matrix in terms of these, what, uh, harmonic resonances of atomic structures? Like we've got uh, hydrogen has the one, helium has two, but it's all relative, right? I don't get to just go like, nobody's looking, I'm gonna take uh, magnesium out of the periodic table. Nobody will miss that one. No, because it's a whole structure, right? So here is both the alphabet and your physical universe. Here's the experience of your physical universe. Here's the pizza I was talking about last week. And not only is, this is another level of dependency. Um, so like right now, for all of us, including myself, for us to be having the visual experience of this book, it is dependent on this book, right? Are you having the visual experience of the book anymore? It's because your visual experience of the book was dependent on this, right? So your visual experience of the book can be traced back to a cause. And when that cause is gone, whoop, no more visual experience of the book, right? So not only was I'm walking down the street trying to get something to eat, and I'm like, oh, look, pizza. So my wanting it is dependent on that. But as I said last week, when I said, oh, yeah, pizza, that's a good idea. It's not that there was this genesis of the idea of dough and make it round and you put tomato, yeah, tomato and you can have anything you want on it. Wouldn't that be great? Like I, I, all of that came with the people. Like, it's all in there. So just like the whole alphabet is in the letter A, the whole kit and caboodle, Italy, grain, tomato, the whole thing is in the idea of a pizza. But it, we think it's so simple. Oh, yeah, I think I'll have pizza. But just like the visual image of this can be traced back to that, my wanting the pizza is traced back to me seeing it, to me knowing about it, all of that, right? Uh, another great dependency, another, just to like top this off, so dependency, you want to talk about dependency? Ah, it's dependent, no? <laughs> I'm being funny, but I'm not. Because this is, this is all dependent. No, it's dependent on the board. There's nothing for it to stick to, right? It's not the marker, right? Okay, so what happens is, is that the Buddha says is that your mind, Ananda, and what he does is he actually holds up... Oh, I wanted to mention this too. It's in this point in the story that the Buddha holds his fist up. And he goes, hey, Ananda, 
like, what is that? Or like, he says, uh, no, no, what is it? And he goes, well, it's your fist. And he goes, how do you know? And he goes, I saw it. And he says, well, what'd you see it with? And he goes, well, I saw it with my eyes and I know it's your fist with my mind. And then he goes, Ananda, that's not your mind. And Ananda goes, what do you mean? And he says, well, just like you can trace the visual image of the book back to that, I held up my fist so you had the idea of the fist. Your thinking about the fist is dependent on me holding this up. Bam! Where'd the fist go? Another great classic example of dependent origination, of dependent reality. Boom! There's the fist again, right? Where did it go? Where did the fist go? It doesn't go anywhere, right? It's a concept. That's all a fist is, is a concept, right? It's a label that you have for bent fingers, right? It's a concept. So what's interesting about a concept is how easily I can show you that it's not real. Because how could something real come so easily in and out of existence? The bold does not seem to come so easily in and out of existence, although I've just explained how it's also dependently originated. And I could just as easily make it disappear. I have on many an occasion. <laughs> but this one, right? So it's, it's a very subtle dharma that the Buddha holds his fist up. Because it's an allusion to this, that it's, it does not appear in the sutra the disappearing fist, but it's a Buddhist illusion that's being made. So when he holds up his fist and he goes like this and like this, and he's like, Ananda, what'd you see? He's like, well, I saw you open and close your fist. It's like, what, how'd you use to see it? I saw, I used my eyes to see it and my mind to, to know about it. And that's when he says, that's not your mind because that mind is dependent. I showed you my fist, so you thought of it. I said this, so you thought of that. I showed you a book, you thought of that. What he says is that that so here's where it gets tricky. He says, this mind that's dependent on things, that's not your mind. He says that there's a pure, bright mind that is independent, that's not dependent on anything. And that's your true mind. And he says at this point in the sutra that there's a, a twofold inversion. And I want to talk about this, this idea of inversion. In Buddhism, they talk a lot about inversion, meaning like, inverted view like upside down you got it twisted kind of an idea so it's important to know in buddhism that when they talk about inversion they're also sort of talking about getting it wrong you've got it wrong you've got it upside down you've got it backwards right so it's in this that the buddha says to ananda we've missed it in two different ways one with this uh six Six sensory organs, six objects, creating these six consciousnesses that are kind of working together. There's actually no center there. There's no there there. This is the idea of anatman or no self in Buddhism, that we mistake there being a self when there's not a self. There's actually this kind of crazy operation of consciousnesses taking place, conditionally based consciousnesses taking place. And the Buddha is saying that that's definitely not your mind. That if, if, it's, if it's an idea that's been given to you, like you want some pizza, you want a bowl, like if it's an idea that's been given to you, it's not yours, right? <clears throat> it's like very, 
subtle brainwashing in a way. All of reality is very subtle brainwashing in that way. Of like, here's an idea to think about. Here's another idea to think about. And what the Buddha says is that if you withdraw from all of that, so you, you withdraw from the books, you withdraw all your senses, and this would be in dhyana, this would be in dhyana meditation. He says if you withdraw all of that so that you're not having any ideas based upon anything, there's a part in the sutra where he says, I don't want you to think that that's your mind. When you arrive at that still place that's not based on any conditions, he says, I don't want you to think that's not your mind, but it's not your mind. When you were, he, and he talks about having these shadow-like um, remembrances of conditioned thinking that even would take place in that dionic state. What he's talking about is something else. And Ananda is still like, I don't even know what you're talking about. He's, he literally is like, you know, I'm thinking about what you're saying. I can only imagine that that which is thinking about what you're saying is my mind. So at that point, the Buddha emits a light from his chest, spiraling svastika light. And he uses, or after that, he drops on Ananda another analogy. And this analogy is the one about a blind man who regains his sight and a sighted person in a pitch black room. And the first thing the Buddha asks Sananda is, is there any difference between a blind person and a sighted person in a pitch black room? And Ananda says, no, there's no difference. Neither person is seeing Jack, right? So then the Buddha says that the wise are awakened by analogies, and he says, so Ananda, if there's a blind person who then, through some operation, all of a sudden regains his sight, and you were to say that it's because his eyes that he can see, then if there was a sighted person in a pitch dark room and somebody turned on a lamp, you would have to say that it's the lamp that sees. And Ananda, by the way, Ananda's very like, confused. He's like, no, I actually wouldn't have to say that. <laughs> and the Buddha then goes on and says, well, if a blind person regains his sight and now can see all kinds of things, isn't it the eyes that are revealing form, but it's the mind that sees? Analogously, if a sighted person is in a pitch dark room and can't see anything, but then someone turns a lamp on and they can see all kinds of things and it's the lamp that's revealing all the forms, you would have to say that it's the lamp that sees. And then the Buddha says, and if it's a lamp that sees, that's unlike any lamp I've ever seen. And I wouldn't even call that a lamp anymore if it's seeing. And if it's seeing, it definitely doesn't have anything to do with you. But with the blind person who regains their sight, it's implied that they are in a room that is not pitch dark. Like their room also has a light. So the, uh, the most important thing about this is to remember that it's an analogy. Meaning that we have a scenario over here, which is a blind person that regains their sight. And over here, there's a scenario where there's a sighted person in a dark room, pitch dark room, that then a light is turned on. And they're analogous. So you don't get to take the blind person and put them in this room, and you don't get to take the sighted person and put them over here. It's an, analog it's an analogy. 
that's supposed to stimulate the mind and thought. So there's something that'll, it's like a, it's a click. It's not a reasoned out thing, if that makes sense. There's a better analogy, or not a better analogy, but there's another analogy a little bit later on. So if you still have questions after that one. After this analogy of the blind person and the sighted person, which again we're going to come back to, the Buddha then holds up his fist, which emits light, and the Buddha asks, um, oh, what happens is, is that the light, the fist illuminates, and the Buddha again asks Ananda what he, what he used to see it, and uh, actually no, it's before that that he opens and closes his fist. And then he says, Ananda, was it the fist that opened, was it my hand that opened, closed, or your mind? And Ananda says, no, it was, your, it was your hand that moved. My mind was still. And I use the analogy of a mirror in that if I had a mirror here and I opened and closed my hand, it would be correct to say that it was my hand that opened and closed, but the mirror didn't move. Even though it appeared that the mirror moved, it stayed perfectly still, Right? The Buddha's analogy is that the true pure mind is like that mirror, okay? And it is at this point that the Buddha calls upon a guy named Anyata. Anyata was actually the very first person to be enlightened by the Buddha. Uh, at the Deer Park, at the first sutra, he was the first guy to be like, oh, I got it. And he relates, at this point in the sutra, he relates a story to everybody about how he became enlightened. And he says that he became enlightened because he was the first to understand what the Buddha meant by dust. In the very first sutra, the, the Buddha mentions dust in our eyes. And in this sutra, the Surangama Sutra, we get a much clearer explanation of what that means. And the term dust... versus the void is, is often used in terms of through a streak of light, you can see the little particles of dust moving, but the void doesn't move in that sense. The void or just the absence is like the mirror where it doesn't move, but the dust moves. There's also in this story of Anyata the telling of the analogy of the innkeeper who has a guest come, stays for the night, and leaves. And the analogy is that that which moves, that which stays for a little while and leaves, is a guest. But the innkeeper, the host, has nowhere to go. So you have these operating things, either dust on the surface of a mirror or dust in the void. And then this guest versus host. And again, in this, the Buddhist is pointing at the conditional, anything that's dependent upon something else and therefore doesn't exist unto itself, depends on something else. All of this is dust on the surface of a pure, bright, clear mirror of a mind. And we have all this dust settling on our minds. That then makes it look like this. People, chairs, time, everything, right? This is all the dust settling on the mirror of the mind. Or these are all guests staying in the inn. All right? So these are the operating metaphors of all this. Dust and mirrors or guests and hosts. And there's also the big light one that's going on. 
After that, the Buddha then emits light from his fist, and it shoots a laser beam across Ananda's right shoulder, and he goes, and then he shoots another one across his left shoulder, and he goes, and the Buddha asks him, again, was it your vision that moved, or was it your head that moved when I shot the light? And he says, well, my head moved, but my vision was still. Again, like the surface of a mirror. My head might have moved, but my vision, my seeing was still. All right, we're almost there. And then the final part of this is, I failed to mention that the star of the, of the sutra, the kind of the, um, the VIP celebrity guest of the sutra is King Prasanajit, who's the king of Shravasti. So this is a sutra that takes place in Shravasti, and the king of Shravasti has shown up, named Prasanajit. And at this point, Prasanajit steps up and is like, all right, I want to know more about what you're talking about. And this is where the Buddha says to him about uh, when King Prasanajit, great king, when was the first time you saw the Ganges River? And he says that it was like when he was three, and then I saw it again when I was a teenager, and I saw it again, I saw it again. And he says, even though you might have gotten wrinkled, has your seeing gotten wrinkled? And Prasanajit says, no. And there's this idea. And uh, last week I mentioned about King Prasanajit saying that he saw the, the Ganges River when he was young. And then he saw the same Ganges River when he was older. And then the same Ganges River. And we talked about Heraclitus, famous Greek philosopher who said you can never step in the same river twice. Very Buddhist idea. I, and we talked about it briefly. But I wanted to say, I said last week, well, I think they're only talking nominally about it. And it would be the same thing as saying, like, have you been to the Grand Canyon when you were three? Did you go there again? Did you go there recently? You might have looked older, but is your vision of the Grand Canyon, has it changed? So this whole sutra is talking about seeing, and it's intentionally playing with this ambiguous poetic zone that all cultures seem to have, between seeing and seeing. Meaning like, oh, I see, I see, I see what you're saying. It, it, it comes up in euphemisms. It comes up in all kinds of things. This relationship between seeing and seeing. Seeing as the visual act and then seeing as the knowing act. Right? That's what this sutra is playing with. And there's even parts where Ananda's like, no, but when we say seeing, we don't really mean that. And the Buddha's like, do we? And that's what the sutra is pushing up against. Is like how much of seeing that you think is happening through your eyes, how much of it is actually happening through your mind, right? How much of this visual experience is actually just shadow, light, and form? And how much of it is the projection of value, the projection of aesthetic value, the projection of use value, the projection of all kinds of stuff, right? All right, you ready to read the sutra? All right, so that's all recap, by the way. That's all just what we had to know to be where we were last time. All right, so we're going to start simple. So after hearing all of this, Ananda rose from his seat, prostrated himself before the Buddha, brought his two palms together, and knelt, saying, World on one, if seeing... The seeing that you're talking about, if the seeing that you just talked told King Prasanajit, 
if that seeing is beyond birth and death, because that's what the Buddha said, is that the seeing that hasn't changed is beyond birth and death. And he says, word one, if, if the seeing are beyond birth and death, why has the Buddha said that we have lost sight of our true nature and so act in an, in, in an inverted manner? Will you be compassionate enough to enlighten us and so wash off our defiling dust? Thereupon the Buddha lowered his golden-hued arm with, the, with his fingers pointing downward and asked Ananda, and so that's my little drawing, by the way, him pointing down. It says, Ananda, as you now see my hand, is it in a correct or inverted position? <laughs> Ananda replied, all worldly men regard this as inverted, but I myself do not know which position is correct or inverted. So you think that's where he's going, right? You think Ananda's like, ah, you're not going to give me Buddha. <laughs> oh, wait, the Buddha asks, Okay, Ananda, if worldly men hold that this is inverted, which position do they consider to be upright? Ananda replied, if the Buddha holds his hand up, pointing to the sky, it will be upright. The Buddha then held his hand up and said, if worldly men so discriminate between an upright and an inverted hand, they will in the same way differentiate between your body and the Buddha's pure and clean Dharma body, and will say that the Tathagata's body is completely enlightened, whereas their body is upside down. If you look closely into your body and the Buddha's body, where is this so-called inversion? After hearing this, Ananda and the assembly were bewildered and gaze fixedly at the Buddha without knowing whether their bodies and minds were really inverted or not. <laughs> All right? The Buddha was moved with compassion and out of pity for Ananda and the assembly, said in his voice as steady as the ocean tide, Virtuous men, I have always declared that form and mind... And all causes arising therefrom are mental conditions and are causal phenomena, and they are but manifestations of the mind. Your bodies and minds are just appearances within the wonderfully bright and pure, profound mind. Why do you stray from the precious, bright, and subtle nature of fundamentally enlightened mind and recognize this deluded mind of yours within enlightenment? What follows is an incredibly dense paragraph that I've been working on with the Chinese because this was so difficult. I went back to the Chinese and I was like, whoa, no wonder, that, no wonder. It's crazy stuff. But this is what, this is kind of it. The mind's dimness creates dull emptiness and both in the darkness unite to become form. The mingling of form with false thinking causes the latter to take the shape of a body, stirred by accumulated causes within and drawn to externals without. Stirred by accumulated causes within and drawn to external causes without. Such inner disturbance is mistaken for the nature of mind. 
Hence the false view of a mind dwelling in the physical body. And the failure to realize that this body, as well as external mountains and rivers and bowls and space and the great earth, are all but phenomena within the wondrous, bright, true mind. Like an ignorant man who overlooks on a great ocean, but grasps a floating bubble and regards it as the whole body of water in its immense expanse. You are doubly deluded amongst the deluded. This is, ex- this, is exactly the same delu- uh, this is exactly the same delusion as when I hold my hand down. And so the Tathagata has said that you are the most pitiable of people. <laughs> All of us. Okay. Uh, Ananda was moved to tears by the Buddha's compassion and profound teaching, brought his palms together and said, after hearing the Buddha's wonderful dharma, I have realized that the wondrous, bright, true mind is fundamentally perfect so that I always dwell in my mind ground, the mirror. But if this awakening, awakening has been due to the Buddha's preaching, then I have really used the causal mind to hear it with reverence, of course, and thereby merely realizing that mind. I dare not pretend that it is the fundamental mind ground. Will you be compassionate enough to enlighten me so as to remove my remaining doubts and so that I can return to the supreme way? You hear what he just said? You get, everybody got that? He's kind of like, I, I, got, I got what you just said, but, right? He's like, I got it, but if, if I get it, haven't I, you done that because it's dependent upon your teaching? So my awakening is dependent. So it, it, it's not the real one. It's not the real ground mind. How do I reconcile that? That's kind of an honest question. He's like, I get what you're talking about, but I also get that my realization is dependent upon your teaching. So I haven't arrived at that ground mind yet, right? By the way, I skipped ahead last time because this is where the Buddha says, it's because you're still using your clinging mind to listen to my dharma. But since, however, this dharma is also causal, you fail to realize the dharma nature and mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon. We did that last week. If I want to jump to ahead, ahead to... Okay, so in answer to his question about the bright, clear ground mind, uh, Ananda asks, if every state of mind can be returned to its original cause, to the book, to to whatever it is, right? If every state of mind can be returned to its original cause, why does the Buddha speak of the wondrous, bright, original, true mind, which is not returnable to anything, anywhere? Will you be compassionate enough to enlighten me? The Buddha said, As you see me now, the essence of your seeing is originally clear. Although it is not the profound bright mind, it is like a second moon, but it's not a reflection of the moon in water. Now listen attentively to my explanation of that which cannot return to anything. And by the way, that moon analogy... Often in Buddhism in sutras, they talk about a moon in a dewdrop or the moon in like a pond and mistaking that moon for the moon, right? And that's like a no-no. Don't mistake a reflection for the real deal. This is actually referring to the phenomena of actually pressing your eye and blurring it so that you see two moons. And what the Buddha is saying is, is like, it's the, you're looking at the real moon. You ain't looking at a reflection, 
but you're clearly distorted because you're seeing two moons. So it's a slightly different analogy where he talks about these two moons, which means like you're close because you're looking at the real thing, but dualistically, right? So. Does he mean that you're looking at the two minds, the conditioned mind, not the conditioned mind, or is that No, he's mean. He means that like. Uh, I mean, it's tricky. It's tricky because it, you know, again, these things are analogous. But the idea is, is that this is a reflection of my mind. It's not a thing. We've talked about this, right? If you want to talk about the thing, we start to do, break it down, and you quickly realize, oh man. I was only talking about these ideas, right? And so that's a reflection. Reflections are diluted. When the Buddha's talking about you're seeing two moons, but it's not a reflection, it means like you're, you're getting close. You're seeing things correctly, or at least you're like in the right ballpark of vision. We just need to correct it so you see only one moon now. But you're past diluted, like mistaking it for reflection land. That's how far along we are in the sutra. All right? Okay. Now. Everybody doing okay? It's like page 80 out of like 300. 34. Yeah. 34, actually. Yeah, we'll talk about that. All right. Yeah. Okay. And I also, by the way, all these things, like he does, he does this thing, and then everybody's bewildered, and then he moves on to something else. There's a way in which... You know, if you have a certain very linear type of mind, this is frustrating because it, it seems like he doesn't finish ideas. But that's where the poetry of these analogies are, is that they're analogies building on analogies building on analogies. And they're not to be taken literally. They're, again, fingers pointing at moons here, right? So listen closely, Ananda. Ananda, the doors and windows of this hall are wide open and face east. There is light when the sun rises in the sky, and there is darkness at midnight when the moon wanes or is hidden behind fog or clouds, i.e. when there's no moon. Your seeing is unimpeded through open doors and windows, but obstructed where there are walls or houses. Where there is discrimination, you perceive the stirring, you, you perceive the stirring causes, and in the dull void, you only see emptiness. An unconscious condition results from confused externals, whereas an awakened state leads to clear perception. Ananda, see now how I return each of these changing states to its causal origin. What are these original causes? Ananda. Of these changing conditions, light, of these changing conditions, light can be returned to the sun. Why? Because there is no light without the sun. And since light comes from the sun, it can be returned to it, i.e. to its origin. Darkness can be returned to the waning moon Clear, sorry, to the waning moon or lack of moon, clearness to open doors and windows, obstruction to walls and houses, causes to differentiation, emptiness to relative void, 
Confused externals can be returned to unconsciousness. And clear perception can be returned to the awakened state. Nothing in the world goes beyond those conditions. Now, when the essence of your perception confronts these eight states, where can it be returned to? If to brightness, you will not see darkness when there is no light. Although these states such as light, dark, obstructed, non-obstructed, differ from one another, your seeing remains unchanged. All states, all states that can be returned to external causes are obviously not you. But that which cannot be returned to anywhere, that which cannot be returned anywhere, if it's not you, what is it? Therefore, you should know that your mind is fundamentally wonderful, bright and pure, and that it's because of delusion and ignorance that you have missed it. And so you're caught on the wheel of transmigration, sinking and floating in the samsaric sea. This is why the Tathagata says that you are the most pitiable of people. Ananda asked, at any point stop me, but it keeps getting clearer, or at least funner. <laughs> More fun, apologies. Ananda asked, I now, under- I now understand that the nature of perception cannot be returned to any external cause, but how can I know that that is my true nature. Right? The Buddha said, Ananda, though you, oh, this is a beautiful part. The Buddha said, Ananda, though you have not reached the state beyond the stream of transmigration, you may now use the Buddha's transcendent power to behold the first dhyana heaven without obstruction. Like Aniruddha, one of the Buddha's disciples, who sees the whole world as clearly as if it's a fruit in his hand. Bodhisattvas can see hundreds of thousands of worlds in their hand. Buddhas in the ten directions can see all the pure lands as countless as dust. As to living beings, their range of sight is sometimes limited to inches. Ananda, as you and I See the palaces inhabited by the four heavenly kings with all that is there in the water, on the ground and in the air. Though there is a great variety of forms and shapes in the light and in the darkness, they are but hindrances resulting from your differentiation of objective phenomena. Here, you should distinguish between your own true self and external objects. From what you see, I now pick out that which is your own true self and those which are but phenomena. Ananda, if you exhaust the field of your vision from the sun and the moon to the seven mountain ranges with all kinds of light, all that you see are phenomena which are not you. As you shorten your range, you see passing clouds and flying birds, the wind rising and dust and trees, mountains, rivers, grass, men and animals, They are all external and are not you. Ananda, 
the great variety of things far and near when beheld by the essence of your seeing appear different, whereas the nature of your seeing is uniform. This wondrous bright essence is really the true nature of your perception. Ananda asks, world honor one, if I am the nature of seeing, why, when the Buddha and I saw all the palaces of the four great heavenly kings and the sun and the moon, why did this seeing first penetrate the whole world and then return to this vihara and then to this temple inside the vihara and now to this hall inside with its eaves and corridors? Does this seeing which first pervaded the entire universe, now returned to and fill only this hall? Does its previous vast scale not shrink? Or is it cut up by the walls of this hall? I don't know where the meaning of all this really lies. Will you be compassionate enough to enlighten me? The Buddha replied, Ananda, all things in this world, whether large or small, inner or outer, as well as in other conditions, are all external. You should not say that your seeing expands or contracts. Yeah, I mean, it's this real idea. He says, if, if, as you just said, when you entered this hall, your seeing shrank into a small compass, then when you look at the sun, then when you look at the sun, do you lift it up and reach the sun in the sky overhead? Which is a crazy idea if you think about it, right? You come in here and your awareness is somehow like trapped in this room, right? Then why when you go outside, why don't you float right up to the sun, right? Again, these are all explorations of this idea of where is your mind? Why why is our perception limited to just this room? Ah, right? Okay. He says all living beings from the time without beginning, have disregarded their own true selves by clinging to external objects, thereby missing their fundamental mind. Thus they are being turned round by objects and perceive large and small sizes. If they can turn objects round, they will be like the Tathagata, and their bodies and minds will be in the state of radiant perfection, from their immutable bodhi mandala, their enlightenment mandala, the end. Oh, sorry. From their immutable bodhi mandala, the end of each of the hairs on their body will contain all lands in ten directions. Really quickly, just this beautiful line: All living beings from the time without beginning have disregarded their own selves by clinging to external objects, thereby missing their fundamental minds. They are being turned round by objects. Right? So we're being turned round by objects. Ooh, bull. Ooh, ooh. They're affecting us. Right? If, on the other hand, they can turn objects around. So rather than the bull affecting me, I'm going to affect the bull. I'm going to turn the object round rather than being turned round by the object, right? If they can turn objects round, they will be like the Tathagata and their bodies and minds will be in the same state of radiant perfection. 
Everybody ready? I don't know what else to do. Ananda, let me ask you. When a worldly man says that he can see things, what does he mean by seeing and not seeing? Straightforward. Uh, Ananda replied, when a worldly man sees forms by way of light, of the sun, moon, or lamps, this is called seeing. But in the absence of such light, he cannot see anything. Hold on to that. The Buddha asked, Ananda, if it is called not seeing when there is no light, how can you see the darkness? <laughs> that's all. I, really, that's where I wanted to get to. Can you see the dark? If he does, right, this is because there is no light. How then can there be seeing, based on what you just said? Ananda, in the dark, if this is called not seeing solely because he does not see the light, then when there is light, if he does not see darkness, this is again called not seeing. If you're blasted with light and you have no contrast, you have no dark, you cannot see. You will be blinded, right? Ananda, in the dark, if this is called not seeing solely because he does not see the light, then when there is light, if he does not see darkness, this is again called not seeing. Thus, there would be no seeing in either case. All light, all dark. Right, But in these two states, which replace each other, the nature of your seeing does not cease for an instant. Therefore, there is actually seeing in both cases. So how can there be no seeing? So, I mean, I, I, I gave it to you. Can you see the dark? It's a serious question. <laughs> And it's the meditation of this section. Because when I, when I laid it out, he said, yeah, light, light is, reveals form. That's how we see. And you were like, yes, that's how it works. Is it how it works? Right? Okay. So keep that in mind about seeing darkness. Right? We're moving, again, this is where he's like, see ya. We're moving on to a new metaphor. Ananda. Ananda said to the Buddha, we're alone one. Although the Buddha has taught us about causes and conditions... The state of the self as such, of mingling in union with externals and non-mingling and non-union with externals, our minds are still not open to this profound teaching. As we listened to his further instruction on seeing that is not seeing, we became even more deluded and perplexed. Please be compassionate enough to open our wisdom eye and enlighten us. After saying this, Ananda shed bitter tears, prostrated himself at the Buddha's feet, and waited for the holy teaching. The Buddha took pity on Ananda in the assembly and was about to teach the profound practice of the samadhis of the great Dharani when he said to Ananda, Though you have tried to memorize my dharma, you have only brought in your hearing and are still not very clear about deep insight into shamatha, calming. 
Now listen with attention to what I now tell you fully for, the ben- for your benefit and for those who are still in the stream of transmigration so that you can all win the fruit of enlightenment. Ananda, all living beings are subject to transmigration through various worlds because of two inversions, two discriminative and wrong views which wherever and whenever they occur cause people to be caught in the turning wheel of samsara. What causes these two wrong views? They are due to their individual karma and collective karma. What is the individual karma that causes wrong views and causes beings to get trapped in samsara? Ananda. It is like a man who, because his eyes are inflamed with a disease, sees at night a five-colored circle around the light of a lamp. Right, so imagine I have a cataract or some sort of swelling, right? And when I look at the light, there's this five multicolored ring around it. It's a pretty common kind of thing that somebody might experience, right? Is this circle of light the color of the flame or the color of the seeing? If it is the color of the flame, why does only the man with bad eyes see it while others don't see it at all? Ananda, if this circle of light is independent of the lamp, the man should see it when he looks at nearby curtains, tables, or mats. If it is independent of his seeing, it should not be seen by the eyes. But why does the man with bad eyes see it? Therefore, you should know that this color is revealed by the lamplight and becomes a circle when perceived by defective seeing. Both the circle and the seeing are due to bad eyes, but that which recognizes this disease is not sick. Thus you should not discriminate and say that it is either the lamp that creates the circle or the seeing that creates the circle. It's like a second moon, which is neither the real moon nor its shadow or a reflection. Why? Because the sight of this second moon is an illusory creation. So wise people should not say that this illusion is or is not. Or that it exists apart from from seeing or not seeing. In the same way, how can you prove that an illusion caused by bad eyes is due to the lamp or due to the seeing? Still less can you establish that it is due neither to the lamp or to the seeing. So that last part's crazy. It's like trying to attribute to something else. But the main point is the same, and this is a great example of dependent origination, all the conditioning, right? He's saying that if there's somebody that has this defective eye, and they see this ring, but when I look over here, I don't see it, and you have eyes, and you don't see the ring. So the question is, is like, does the ring exist? Does it not exist? Is the ring being caused by the lamp? Or is it being caused by the eye? And if the answer is that it's being caused by the eye, then why don't I see it over here? Why don't I see it here? And if it's being caused by the lamp, why can't you see it? If it's being caused by the lamp. 
right? Well, if we're all, you know, Buddhist, you know, we've done our Dharma study here, so we can kind of see, oh, this is a great example of dependent origination, meaning that we all have problems with our eyes, all the faculties, and all of this are rings. There are rings around the lamp. This is a dependently originated ring around the lamp. And the, all of the th same things apply to what I just said about the other one. Why don't I see the bowl over here, though? Right. Why isn't the bowl over here? Why is it only here? Well, why is the ring only there? Right? Does the bowl exist? Well, does the ring of light exist? It exists for that person, right? Right? Isn't that ring of light really there for that person that has a defective eye and who's really seeing it? I'm really seeing it. It's no proof to me that it's not a distortion of my faculties. That's all the Buddha's been saying all night with all of this. These are all distortions in the faculty. These are all rings around the defective eyes. Dust on our eyes. Uh, guests staying. The guest comes, the guest goes, but the host stays. Who's the host? That's the, the meditation is, okay, if this is, if my vision of this is dependent on this, and that goes away, and the book goes away, and all the stuff goes away, keep going, keep going, and try to get to the unconditioned. Mm, the indestructible. <laughs> Thank you. So the mirror is the indestructible. The reason why this is called the Shurangama Sutra is because that state is indestructible. The conditioned reality is all too destructible. This is classic Buddhism 101, anicca, impermanence. All things come to naught. All things are fading. All things are conditional. All things are dust. Yes, they're all destructible. The bowl, this can be destroyed. The book can be destroyed. It can all be broken down and destroyed. But the, the mirror, the bright, pure mind, it's indestructible. And again, the indestructible, this is nirvana. This is ah, samskrita. Dharma. Asamskrita Dharma. Unconditioned Dharma. Not conditioned by anything. Not dependent upon anything. Again, I, I, I want to stress this, that Buddhism is talking about how all of our pleasure in this life, all of our happiness is dependent on stuff. Dependent on things. My happiness is dependent upon the bowl. The problem is, is that when the bowl goes away, oh, my happiness goes away because my happiness was dependent on the bowl. Buddhism is talking about that we have access to the independent. We have access to the independent and we can get joy and happiness from the independent, that which can never be taken away, that which is indestructible. We have access to that. But us, our most pitiable of people, are getting our happiness 
from all of these external phenomenal objects. Yeah. Hi. Uh, is it time to ask a question? It's always time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's kind of well, um, the mural where you see the reflections, then often you have the screen in the movie, this analogy, right? And, and for me, it's often still in the language of duality. So, and, and kind of, from my understanding, I don't know that is, is there's not even a difference between the reflection on the mural and the mural itself. So the reflection are also just there because the mirror is there. And the screen is, the appearances on the screen in the theater are only there because of the screen. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I feel like, even you know, with thoughts, we get rid of thoughts and meditation, but thoughts are just there because also consciousness with a few mind or put on our minds there. Anyway, so I often have a difficulty in the language of, it's often still in the concept of, of, of duality. So two, two things on that. One is the question of duality. So the question of duality is yes, yes. We are talking, we are calling the indestructible nirvanic element, we're calling that pure, yes. And, and we're calling it uh, bright. The, the language of pure and bright in Buddhism usually refers to delusion, like being in the dark not being able to see where you're going. And so enlightenment, the very enlightenment, has the metaphor of light in it, the idea of seeing clearly. Uh, pure is again, is versus deluded, polluted with these ideas. Yes, that's totally dualistic. What Buddhism's talking about though is that this world is the dualistic world. Yeah, there's a problem with dualism. This is all dualism, subject, object, all of this is dualistic. Buddhism is already way past dualism, and they're trying to use dualistic language to talk to dualistic minds about dualism. And they're saying that there is, how about this? That which is beyond dualism? Let's just for now give it a name, and we'll call it pure. Let's just for now give it a description, and we'll call it bright. To call that dualistic is like, or I have to do the whole dance again, right? So let's be careful about calling things dualistic when the whole operation that we're doing is about what that. In terms of the mirror, though, what you, your, the other part of your question is exactly the idea. Our minds could potentially be perfectly reflective, but we have this corrosive dust on our mirror that's causing us to see deludedly. It's causing us to miss it. So we have these goggles on or whatever, but it has all this dust all over it, the dust of desire, greed, hatred, delusion, all kinds of stuff. But we don't know we have these goggles on. We think everybody sees the world the same way, and so I'm deluded. And if I could get rid of the dust, polish the mirror, drop the goggles, clear up the kleshas, whatever it is, then the mind would just reflect it perfectly with no distortion. You know, there's another way to look at it too, which is not just the dust, but thinking of like a carnival mirror that's all kind of bent and it's making you look all tall or skinny and all of that. So there's a way in which our minds are reflecting reality, 
but doing a little twister, little like distortion to it. And so the practice is about getting it perfectly still so it's reflecting perfectly. That is the practice. Mm. That's the whole idea of this mm. in that regard. Yes? So what you mentioned before, um, perceiving or seeing, or maybe I understood it, uh, you can it, um, is based on um, your own conditioning of the mind and the conditioning and the karma from, of the object itself. And just when they come together, there's, this, there's the perception or experience. I think it's like, is this correct? Like what the, man, the example that you gave with um, the lamp, right? And, with when you have something in your eye, right? Mm-hmm. So is it the lamp or or the eye? It's it's both. It's both. Right? But if if the lamp only exists because there's seeing, I don't understand why the lamp has any any importance in that. You know what I'm saying? Like when I look at the tanka, it's in my perception, the perception so it's all um, um, solitary based on my perception. So I see the red because I like red and I don't see the black because I don't like black. <coughs> I don't understand why it has nothing to do with the tanka itself. <coughs> hmm. you know, um, not really, but I do want to <clears throat> you know, emphasize this idea of like having the cataract that produces the optical illusion I've talked a lot in the past about just the perception of color. And the perception of color is exactly like that. The idea is that we all have unique eyes, unique sets of rods and cones that process information different ways. And so actually, the idea of, of you know, whatever, is this bra- gold, brass, bronze colored? Meaning is, or a better one is, I like my green pillow here. Is this green? Like, is this green? And what we've talked about in the past is like, well, no, actually, there's something, some information here that the particular rods and cones of my eyes perceive as, quote, green. And there could be somebody here that has a totally different set of rods and cones, and they would see it as red. That's exactly like me having a cataract and seeing a little green pillow. You see what I'm saying? Like from color to shape to all of the senses are exactly like that. Oh, it's soft. That's a cataract circle in my body sense. Oh, it's square. That's a cataract circle in my mind sense. You see what I'm saying? The idea that is being articulated here is that every perception you have of anything external is like a, a, a dependently origin a dependently originated light circle. This is a dependently originated light circle. It's dependent on the coming together of your eyes and this object. And what it looks like, feels like, and all of that is an experience you're having. But it's a delusion. A delusion in the sense that you think this is the same for everybody else. You, yeah, it's a green pillow square. And it doesn't matter if it's a dog that comes in here. It doesn't even matter. It's a green pillow square. And until we recognize, ah, no, the green pillow square is only up here, being projected onto a realm of pure form that probably doesn't look anything like this. 
at all, at all. You know, I wanted to mention something very quickly. You know, the way the um, the way Buddhism sees this working is that the very first thing that happens is we have a basically a negative or a positive or neutral reaction to something, right? So we either have a negative reaction and we want to push it away. We have a positive reaction. We'd like to pull it towards us and have more of it. Or we have a neutral reaction to something. Neutral reactions are neutral. They're like the song, the last song you didn't hear playing that just went through you and you didn't like it, but you did not like it. You didn't even notice there was a song playing. That's a neutral reaction, right? So here's what's how Buddhism, the kind of the cognitive side of Buddhism, this is how they see it happening. Oh, I didn't like that. What was that? Oh, that was, uh, somebody poked me. But the negative reaction comes first. Then there's the, well, I got to figure out what's causing me this negative reaction. And then you go like, oh, that's something tangible that's poking me. Or it could be like negative reaction. Oh, that's some guy yelling too loud. The idea in Buddhism, though, is that the negative or the positive or neutral reaction comes first, and then we start going around labeling it, whether it's something I saw I didn't like, I heard I didn't like, I felt I didn't like, and then once I figured out, oh, I didn't like it, and it was something I heard that I didn't like, now I can begin the labeling process of, oh, it was a guy outside, oh, he was drunk, da 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 but it starts actually with the negative or positive reaction that then I determine was something I felt, right? This idea of sort of like the phenomena happening and then the cognition of it happening after the, the experience, you, this, is, this is what Buddhism is talking about, but it's even where we're at, meaning Western science, Western philosophy, all of that. And it has to, I'm going to, this is, there's no other time I'm going to be able to talk about this. So, this idea of a, a presupposition or the subject, both of these words, presupposition or subject, in English, philosophically, they mean the same thing. Pre beforehand supposition, presupposition, presumption or presupposition, and subject, sub and sub. It's the bottom. It's before, and jet or position. It's that which I can put on top of. If you don't know about jet. It's, it means to like put on, put on, object, project, whatever, the ject part of it. And so the subject is that which I'm throwing stuff on. I'm not talking Buddhist here yet. I'm of pure Western philosophy right now. This is how Western ontology or Western thinking works. It's all based on the subject or the presupposition. The, the presumption or the presupposition of all Western thinking is this. First, I got an object. Now let's come up with a name for it. Let's call it a bowl. Bowl. 
So what we think happens is that we're just confronted with, we're, we're Adam in the garden, and we're just confronted with all kinds of objects, and we go around naming them. Pillow, bowl, that's, that's the idea. It's diluted, by the way, both in, in Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. It's totally diluted. But the idea is, is that there's something there, and it just needs a name. We're not ready yet to accept that we have this whole big encyclopedia of names and ideas. And it's just like, oh, that must be a bull. If, if you know what I mean. Meaning that the idea, the concept comes first, and then something vaguely resembles that concept, and so it's a bull. Meaning that the bowl, the notion that I'm just subjecting, that I'm just throwing the bowl, like throwing the label onto that. It's like, oh yeah, but we could call it a whatever, a daisy or a jibber-jab or whatever. It doesn't matter. That's the notion. The notion is that it, it exists and it just needs a name. But actually in both Western philosophy and certainly Eastern philosophy, that's all we've been talking about, Actually, the reason why I think there's an object in my hand is because of the construct of the idea of a bowl and all of that, that I can cram it in. It's not as simple as we think of like, hey, what's that? Bowl. It's going the other way. And that's very much uh, what the Buddha said in terms of we're being turned around by objects and we need to turn objects around. Meaning that if you think this is a bowl, you're being turned around by this object. And if you've been following everything I've been saying about how, A, of course, this is not a bowl. It's bowl-shaped, right? Because I already showed you if I, if I heat it up and, and pulled it and pulled it and pulled it and flattened it out, it would be the exact same thing, right? But would it be a bowl if it were flat? Would that make any logical sense to call it a bowl if it were flat? Right? So I just showed you it's not a bowl. It is currently bowl-shaped. And then what we're stuck with is it. That we're saying it's bowl-shaped. And then the question becomes, well, what is it then? Right? What is it? And then you go, wait a minute. <gasps> it, singular. Is this one thing? <laughs> is this one thing? How many? How many? It depends, right? It depends on what I mean, right? Is this a bowl? No. It's bowl-shaped. Then we can start talking about it and then begin to wonder about what it might be. Is it a collection of brass? I, I, don't, I don't Is brass an element? I don't even know. It's not, right? So it, what is it then? Oh my God, it's not even brass then. Because if brass isn't an element, then it must be made of 
more derivative elements, right? And again, how many of those? A hundred billion, a hundred billion whatever elements. Does that include this one? If I put this element over here, is it still it? If it doesn't have this little one? Do you see, you see what's happening here, right? That it's just, it's falling apart like the dust. And you realize, oh my God, it's a concept first. But we think, it come, we think the thing comes first. And, and that we just, the mind labels it. And it's the other way around. We have a label and then we have a cataract mind circle of light. Is this similar to uh, we're parts of a cart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great one about the cart. And the, yeah, I'm not going to get into it. Mm. So I'll tell you yes. And some night I'll do because I have a great story about the cart and I want to do it justice. So... Um, Question, last questions, ideas? You, you promised to talk about the light and where it's coming from in that sequence, and you promised something else at the beginning. But well, that was the indestructible, which I did. I asked everybody oh, okay. to, to if I didn't explain the indestructible. Oh, and by the way, on that note, if you took my uh, Vimalakirti, there is a chapter in Vimalakirti called On the Destructible and the Indestructible, and it is about this idea of that which is indestructible and then all that which is destructible. And then there's other sutras that actually talk about when you tap into this mind ground, you become indestructible in that sense, impervious, because you're not identifying with the conditional dusty body. No, I have a comment, but if you were about to say something. I'm just like, by my own comment, there's a question that I don't have time to make, but it's really, you know, a whole sutra, right? Compared to the other ones last year, right? It's so dense and so brave. If you also think about it, it's like the whole situation about again the sexuality thing, how it started. Mm -hmm. You know, with Ananda, right? It's like where where's your mind in relation to like finding yourself in a brother, right? And, and the comments and the you know the idea of purity and brightness. So other religions are dealing with that a lot, right? And what they're doing, they're doing horrible things of mm. blaming it, the woman, cover the woman, or cover yourself. Here there's a huge statement. Mm. No, it's, yep. don't blame it, but it's, so there's something about the indestructible, the purity in that sense that all other religions are about him, specifically the problem mm. with sexuality that you see right now in the world is so controversial. So here's a question. It's like, when was it written? 7, 800? Well, we definitely know it was around in 700. Could go back to the time of the Buddha. We don't know. Was that a reaction to mm. The purity and other religions that are dealing with the problem with sexuality and like taking responsibility, like that, is there any social, mm. political kind of perspective? Like we need to deal with the problem of sex because we need to figure it out. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't think so. Okay. Only because I do think that in this sutra, the idea of Ananda getting seduced by sexuality. Mm. 
is again an, a, 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 a um, kind of a, an allegory for that the sutra is about our desire for this world. The sexual desire just being the most like gross in the sense of the most out there form of desire. And so I don't see it only because it's only mentioned that one time in the beginning and then it's all about the desire for objects of the world. Yeah. So. I don't think so. I think it's being more allegorical about desire in that sense. And Ananda is allegorically the youngest, most un, most out of control of his desires. Is it the rare to have this example in other sutras? Because I don't think I heard uh, kind of gross. You mean about the prostitution? Yeah. Well, you get Vimalakirti talking about how he hangs out in yeah. prostitution houses, but that's a famous moment for being funny in a sutra this is kind of a famous moment for not being funny but for being kind of an anecdotal story but yeah i don't know i haven't seen it much else being treated this way obviously you get into the poly canon talk a lot about sexuality but not in such a poetic way yeah um and i wanted to address gnome's other question so this sutra the shurangama sutra is actually called the indestructible, the Shurangama Sutra, that's spoken from the Buddha's Usnisha. And that's an allusion to the beginning of the sutra when out of his Usnisha, his, his protrudence, all this light emits, and then a Buddha, like a transformation body on a thousand petal of light, emerges. And it's almost kind of like, is it that? Is it this Buddha that preaches this whole sutra? There, it's kind of like, is, it, did everybody get sucked into the Buddha's mind? Like, it's really weird. And so the, it starts with the Ushnisha. But what I mentioned last week is that there's some sort of chakric progression where it goes from the crown chakra, which is the top, to the urna. Uh, they, kind of, they don't actually skip the throat chakra because there is a line in there. It's a moment. If the Buddha had admitted light out of his throat, I would have included it. But it just says that it's a moment where it says the Buddha opened his, his mouth and his ocean-like voice, yada, yada, yada. But it's, it comes at the point in which it would be here. Then you get the heart chakra. Then you get a hand mudra, and that's where we're at. Hmm. I don't think it goes down any further than that, but I'm not sure. We'll find out. I haven't read the sutra for a while, so I can't remember. But there's some sort of chakric dissension going on. Also, the Ushnisha is the Buddha. It's the, it is the Buddha's wisdom. There's a whole genre of sutras that are actually spoken from the Buddha's Ushnisha, oddly enough. Um, so the, and, and the Ushnisha is the first of 32 unique marks of an enlightened person. So the reason why it comes first is like, definitely... But then you have this sort of um, uh, Buddha, or Ananda doesn't get this. So out of the third eye, the Buddha lets all this light out. And then kind of all of a sudden Ananda gets it. So there's this relationship between the third eye and then people getting their little Dharma eyes turned on. Then what happens out of this is that they talk about how, oh, nobody still gets it. So out of compassion, heart center, the Buddha, like, here, here's an, uh, you know, 
so that's what's going on. And then the hands are more of this like um, agency or effectiveness type of type of thing. Yes. I want to comment on that. Um, I think we talked about it like weeks ago. Um, often it's sort of yeah, um, um, mind, speech, and heart, right? But you know when you see when we do illustrations, right? It's actually body, speech, and mind. Mm -hmm. I'm often thinking, you know, when he opens his heart, it's even more. He, he talks not about only compassion, but specifically really the essence of of the mind itself. Mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I'll remind you again that the and, you know this is being translated from Chinese, and the Chinese the Xin is this idea of the heart mind. In Chinese, in Chinese, that character, although the character is pictographically originally, if you look at old old ones, it's actually the the chambers in the shape of the heart. So they are talking about the organ, but ever since back in the day this character has referred to the heart mind, that the Chinese have always seen cognition and emotion happening in between. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean in, like Ananda, in between, but that it involves both the mind and the heart. So, very much. Yeah. Well, there's not really a mind chakra. That, that you know, this, the crown chakra is spirituality. Right. This is sort of more not spirituality, but more cognition. It's third eye, so it's yeah. like spiritual, but not as spiritual as the crown. It's like the and then the throat is traditionally creativity, so not just speaking, but all forms of creativity. The heart is emotions. Buddhism doesn't get into this, by the way. What Buddhism gets into, really quickly, I, didn't, I haven't mentioned this the whole time yet. So they're in this little, uh, uh, they call it a temple, little vihara, right? The, there's the analogy about, so he says like about, is your mind inside your body? And they're inside the hall. And he says about the Buddha being inside the hall and that you should be able to see the Buddha inside the hall first before you see things outside the hall. And since you can't see the Buddha inside the hall, your mind can't be inside because you only see things outside the hall, Right? What's funny about that is, is that the hall in the sutra has five doors or six doors and the Buddha's inside the hall asking Ananda. So it's all a metaphor for your mind. There are so many layers to, especially Mahayana sutras, like poetic layers like that, where they're talking about light and they're in a room and it's like, oh my gosh. So... Just keep that in mind that these windows to the outside, again, are the little windows we have to the outside. And they're talking about the little Buddha inside. <laughs> it's great. It's beautiful stuff. All right, folks, on that note, thank you so much. My pleasure. Hope to see you all next week. Thank you.